Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained, and where the unexplained might just be. Hi, folks. Once again, thanks a lot for joining me. I'm just uh, going to try and get through some fun stuff here today. Well, some educational stuff, and but make it fun. So thanks a lot. Hope you're looking forward to your Christmas, and if you're traveling, that you're safe out there. And you can listen to us at 1100 or 980 or 92.7 or 101.3 or on the Internet or on our podcasts. You can get them to play through a lot of your services out there, Spotify, iTunes, things like that. Just ask for uh, the Rick Wagner Show. Getting it right with Rick Wagner works sometimes just as well. Here's what we're going to do this week. I want to bring a little history to us, bring it to life right here in the radio. I, I want to talk about some things this week that we hear tangentially, but we never seem to get a good story or context from the newsreaders. And when they bring their experts in, they don't seem to talk about it either. Everything is like sort of the now, now, now. Well, the now, 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 not to put it too strongly, doesn't mean much if you don't know the yesterday and yesterday. How did it get there? You know, what caused it? What put us in this position? And, you know, we, we just don't get any of that. So I'm going to try and do that. And what I'm going to try and talk about this segment is uh, what happened with the rise of Islam and how it sort of was pushing in to Europe and kind of what happened then. And it sets the stage for the whole Middle East, which we'll also talk about in a little bit. But you need to know this history. I think many of you do. But, for instance, you need to know that Constantinople was the eastern capital, well, it was the capital of the eastern Roman Empire. And after the West sort of went down the tubes in Route 476 uh, and kind of was breaking apart, everything was moved to Constantinople. Now, Constantinople tried to maintain itself as Rome and, and was fairly well Romanized, but uh, at some point they reached the point where everybody was speaking Greek for the most part, except people in the church and a few things like that that were still speaking Latin. Nevertheless, Constantinople was the jewel of the empire. It was proud, the crossroads of Europe and Asia. Remember, I mean, it's, it sits at the Bosphorus. It uh, sits right across the very small opening that you have to go through to get from the Black Sea out into the Mediterranean. Tremendously powerful spot. And for centuries, it was sort of the heartbeat of the empire. And it became, from Rome, they started calling themselves later the Byzantine Empire, but they still considered themselves Roman. It had art, culture, and a lot of power. It's a very big city, very well defended, had some of the thickest walls by the middle of its history of anywhere probably in the world, certainly within the confines of the Mediterranean and surrounding areas. But, of course, you know, nothing lasts forever. And in the 15th century, well, Constantinople slash Byzantine Empire, 
they'd seen better days. I mean, a lot of things had happened there. They had, you know, insurrection a few times. It was their succession was terrible in terms of their leadership with their emperor. I mean, it was just a constant infighting. And as we all know, we sort of get this phrase about things being Byzantine. And that's what it was. Everything was complicated and difficult to figure out and included their succession and how their government worked. They also had seen better days because they'd had the plague a number of times and had wiped out large portions of the population. It's bad enough in many places, but when you're in a very crowded, very large, walled city, things like plague and other diseases, once they break out, they take a lot of lives. So who do we have on the horizon? Well, we have a new sultan, Sultan Mehmed II of the new Ottoman Empire. He's ambitious, he's young, and he's trying to make a name for himself. And he's looking at Constantinople. They've been trying to take Constantinople off and on for a long time. Trying to come up out of the, essentially the desert and across sort of Iraq and Iran and get Constantinople out of the way. Constantinople's kind of the plug that keeps them from getting into, you know, Europe. Haven't had any luck with it up to now. But now, when they lay siege to the city, and they do with an enormous army, well over 100,000 people, uh, they have cannons. Now, people have had cannons for a while, and they weren't really big enough to do much damage to the walls of Constantinople. That all changed. Mehmed bought bigger cannons that he could find, and then he hired a German gunnery guy to cast what to then is probably the biggest cannon that anybody had seen. He cast this enormous cannon, and they turned it loose on Constantinople and just pounded and pounded and pounded. Uh, in case you're wondering, uh, towards the very end, the great big cannon blew up and blew up the guy that built it even though he'd already been paid. <laughs> Just didn't get a chance to spend it. So once those cannons went to work on the walls, they did end up falling. The Emperor Constantine, what, the 11th, doing his best, but things aren't going in his favor. Okay? So the city falls. It's a turning point. Not just the city changing hands, but a whole era is ending. The aftermath is rough. Plunder, death, and all sorts of people surrounding Constantinople and on the European side in particular. Armenians, Greeks, Jews, all caught up in the middle of it. When it happens, it's, it's more than a city is lost. It's the end of an era. Byzantines are out. Ottomans are in. This isn't just a political shift. It's a tectonic cultural upheaval. And caught right in the middle of it, as we said, are people who are living like in the Balkan areas. Serbs, Greeks, Albanians, Bulgarians, all those kinds of folks. And so at this point, what do you think it looks like? Well, the Balkans become a battleground, sort of like a chessboard, trying to stop the Ottomans. But they're not just pieces of the game. They're very independent people. A lot of them have trouble getting along with each other. Take the Albanians, for instance, who fought by themselves for a while under their hero who's got a guy named uh, Skanderberg. Resisted the Ottomans that 
in, in a way that's still famous in that area of the world. Now, let's take a look at 1571. Everybody's been fighting the Ottoman Turks to try and keep them out of Europe here as much as possible. A lot of warfare has been fought in what we think of now as Transylvania, Bulgaria, Romania, Hungary, Serbia, Bosnia, that whole group in there. They've taken a real beating holding these guys back. But they're still coming. In 1571, they've decided to go to sea and try and get around all of these pesky people who keep, you know, raiding them and fighting them when they try and get into Europe. And so there is a holy league formed, include forces from the Venetian Republic and Spain, to put a mighty navy into the water. Now, this is this is pretty high stakes. It couldn't really be higher. Uh, the Holy League's victory here, it's a breath of relief. They do have a tremendous bre- uh, victory. The guy that runs it is a guy named John John. Uh, fantastic seaside, seaside, sea victory. Pushes them back, pushes them back. But let's not forget, this isn't the first time we've had the, the fight over this stuff. If you go all the way back to the Battle of Poyers in 1732, when there was a influx of people from the Middle East that got quite a bit into it, Charles the Hammer there, that's what Martel means, uh, managed to push them back. Not very far from places where they're just letting them in now. <laughs> but what's the takeaway? The fall of Constantinople, Lepanto, Piors, uh, Portes, they're not just battles or dates in a textbook. They reshaped the world. They influenced politics, culture, obviously religion. They set the stage for the Renaissance, kicked off the age of exploration, and left stories that, well, they still echo today. And so I wanted to bring that to you guys, give a little context. It's a little adventure, too. Read up on it if you have some time. Right ah, folks, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around here. Hope you're enjoying a little deep dive into history this weekend. I just wanted to bring this to you to give you this kind of context, just even some of it, to be able to make some sense out of what these talking heads on TV are throwing around. And to be able to discuss this with some of these progressives that, you know, think that Lyndon Johnson was president during the Civil War, yet have a very strong and strident opinion on things that happen in the Middle East that have a context over hundreds, if not thousands of years. So I think it's good to have the knowledge to fire back at that. So let's look. take a little bit of this uh, Palestine area. We're going to take a look from its pre-Roman times all the way up to really pivotal year of 1948, kind of unravel this complexity, this tapestry in this region, and see if we can't journey through the sands of time, as they say. The story sort of begins long before the Romans, a land where you know a lot of the ancient peoples roamed talking about a time when civilizations were just taking place, taking shape, rather. The Hebrews or Israelites make their entry here. According to biblical tradition, this goes back to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's say we're talking around 1800 B.C., although historians debate these exact dates. So now let's fast forward 800 years to 1000 B.C., and we've got a united monarchy under kings like Saul, David, and Solomon. Jerusalem arises, 
as the spiritual and political heart. But you know, good things don't seem to last forever, particularly in the ancient world. The kingdom splits, and in come the Assyrians and Babylonians, shuffling the deck of power in the region there. Now we have to look at the Persians. The Persians come in then, and they conquer Babylon, and give the Jews the uh, high five that they can return home after being run out by the Babylonians, right? Babylonians ran everybody out, Jews in court in, included. Um, but then Alexander the Great rolls in on this stuff, right? He gets Palestine, and then Palestine in that whole area. Remember, this is a region. This isn't a country. This is a region gets a taste of Hellenistic culture, which is what the, the Greeks had brought with them with Alexander. And after Alexander, this whole region sees a mix of rulers. The Ptolemies, of course, we know that ends up with Cleopatra, Cleopatra the Seventh, by the way, uh, the Seleucids and the famous Maccabean. I can never say that. And those of you who are more biblical than I probably said it, but every time I say it, it's wrong. Uh, Maccabean revolt, where the Jews regain some autonomy. Now, here come the Romans, 63 B.C. They're kind of the new bosses of a lot of the world. They're not really as high as they're going to go, but they're on their way up. They're showing real promise. Not exactly opened with, welcomed with open arms. The Jewish revolts flare up. There's a big one in 70 uh, A.D., leading to the destruction of the Second Temple in Jerusalem. Uh, that's a pretty big event in Jewish history, as you know. So now we fast forward all the way to the 7th century. Arabs arrive. At this point now, they started to bring Islam with them. Brand new religion. Jerusalem is now thought to be a holy city also for them. So they set up stakes down there, and over time, they pretty much lock the area up as their own. Now, in the 11th century, the Crusades come along. The Pope at the time feels that to have infidels control all the holy sites in, of course, the Holy Land is not a good thing. That Christians should control Christian sacred places. So he preaches a crusade. Now, the first crusade is pretty successful. And we've talked a little bit about the uh, tactical issues, and it is very interesting. Two very different ways of, of fighting in terms of equipment, tactics, the whole thing. Uh, the massed charge of knights from Western Europe was not something that anybody could really withstand. On the other hand, they weren't very good at chasing people around in the desert. So if they got too far away after their charge... They'd get surrounded and shot full of arrows. So it, it was a tough fight. But as a consequence of that, uh, in a, essence, the Crusaders probably pretty much won and had established Crusader kingdoms, they called it, around Jerusalem and so forth, gosh, for over 100 years. By the Second and Third Crusades, things start getting a lot tougher. Uh, the other side had learned the tactics used by the Western powers. They also knew that there was only a limited amount of people that were going to be able to come or that were coming, whereas the battles were being fought in their homeland, they had a lot more access to uh, 
uh, personnel. They also finally got a very good general, Saladin. He kind of ran up into a standstill a little bit with another really good general, uh, Richard the Lionheart. Kind of put off the inevitable. They agreed to share some things. And then after that, the, the crusades that happened were half-hearted. Everything went downhill. And eventually, uh, once again, the Arab peoples took over that area. Right. And <laughs> it's just sad because uh, a lot of things could have happened in there that would have been better for both sides. Now, here's the big game changer. We talked about this in the first period. The Ottoman Empire, they take over in 1517. For about 400 years, this area of Palestine is part of their vast empire. But eventually, like all of these, they start crumbling around, and then they make a bad choice in World War I. What do they do? They side with the Germans. And the, uh, you know, the things don't go well for them. And we don't even know that if, unless people have some history, uh, in the back of their mind that all this area is being fought over. When you watch Lawrence of Arabia, this is what they're talking about. This is the British army fighting the Turks in Palestine and what we think of as Arabia, Syria, Jordan, stuff like that. And it goes on. The Ottomans lose. The empire breaks up. Uh, and the pieces are laying out there for people to do things with. Well, after World War One, the British take the reins there, right? And they go to the League of Nations. And the League of Nations promise a homeland for the Jews. Um, but they assure that Arabs have their own rights. What does that mean, this dual promise? Yeah, it's a recipe for some attention because they never really define it. After World War Two and the Holocaust, a whole wave of Jewish refugees come to Palestine. They've been promised this land back that they've their forefathers have been on for thousands of years and intensify to get the promise of a Jewish state, which was promised to them after World War One, going. Meanwhile, Arab nationalism is on the rise. And there are people in Palestine and neighboring countries are like, wait a second, we've got enough countries here. We don't need more, right? Now, in the background of all of this, this whole geopolitical thing is changing. The end of World War I and the fall of the empire led to the creation of new states. And we can say hello to Syria and Jordan. And they set the stage for what's to come in Palestine. In 1947, the United Nations, now it's not the United Nations, not the uh, League of Nations anymore, proposes partitioning Palestine into Jewish and Arab states. The Jews accept the Arabs, not so much the other way around. And things never really go well. Finally, in 1948, under what's called the Balfour Doctrine, which came from the British, really, um, Israel is declared a state. Instantly, the Arab states around it jump into what becomes of, the, of this 1948 Arab-Israeli war. The war reshapes the map and lives of countless people. A whole new chapter in this, right? But what's what's sad about this is let's go back to see where these countries came from to begin with themselves. Uh, they, <laughs> I don't know. Let, let's look at some of these here. If you look real quickly, um, Syria. Okay, The British and the French had been eyeing the Middle East for a while. And Syria, the French had their eye on it, and Jordan fell to the Brits. 
borders they drew up weren't exactly based on the complex realities on the ground. Think more along the lines of rulers and maps and line drawing that didn't take into account for diverse ethnic and religious groups living there. And France, of course, gets Syria. Britain takes Palestine. And they are part of each empire until 47, I think. And they're supposed to be temporary, guiding them towards independence. Didn't go very long. That can kind of get stretched out. Okay. Uh, there's a, there's a bunch of stuff in here about the Brits who are smart enough to play. They place a family on the the Jordan throne, the uh, Hashemite, and the and probably is what we're looking at when we see the King of Jordan now. So you see what's going on here. This whole area was just created after World War One. Tensions never died down. Uh, a lot of the the places were arbitrarily drawn, and so it's created nothing but problems from the beginning. And everybody thinks that somebody else should get off their lawn. And there we have it. Yes, there we are back. Well, I would have to say that aficionados listening to this bumper and those on your podcast unfortunately missed it, would, of course, recognize the intro music to this segment as that for Mr. Peabody and the Wayback Machine from the Rock and Bullwinkle Show. Because, once again, we're going to get in the Wayback Machine and see if we can't straighten people out with some history. Remember, if some of you have seen in reruns or whatever the case may be, I saw a lot of the reruns when I was in college, actually. I may explain a lot. But Sherman was a young boy who did not have a lot of uh, schooling. And his dog, Mr. Peabody, actually had adopted him sort of the reverse of going to the animal shelter. And each week they had an opportunity to learn something about history because Sherman didn't know anything about it. This sounds very familiar today. The difference was Sherman was a good-natured young lad and wanted to learn about things. And so they went into Mr. Peabody's contraption that he had invented because, of course, he was a genius, not on the level, perhaps, of Wiley E. Coyote, super genius, but still. And then they would dial back in time and go have an adventure. Well, we're sort of going to do that here because we've been doing this this show today and we're going to continue it. Because the more I get into these things, the more I think these context has to be important. And the more I listen to people mention things on the news or write about them, to sort of gloss over them or put them together in a way that I know isn't really correct. I think we owe it to you listeners out there. To give a little perspective and sort of, you know, sort of thumbnail way about some of these topics. And in this segment, we've obviously been visiting a lot of history. In this segment, we're going to talk about the Crusades. So that seems to be coming up periodically in this whole Middle East thing. Now, you, we've already talked a little bit about how the Middle East, today's Middle East, came about and how it came about very differently than most people on the left seem to think it did or what's going on there at all. Let's look at the Crusades for a minute. Now, we all know the Crusades were the idea that the Western civilization, Christian Western civilization, wanted to free up the Holy Land, that is Jerusalem, Galilee, Bethlehem, Damascus even, uh, you know, all of these areas that are in the Bible and where Jesus did his work. 
They want to free them up from the Arabs, which are now Islamic. And although some of the shrines there uh, are also useful in the Islamic religion, the Western European powers were not happy about it being held by infidels, as they said. Now, remember, the first thing you have to think about is this is an enormous undertaking, and I mentioned this before. You have people in the, uh, well, you know, it's essentially the 11th century (laughs) who are getting themselves together, getting their knights, getting their squires, getting their archers, getting everybody together all the way up into England and around in Normandy and Spain and France and Germany and all of that area and then transporting this enormous army across the Mediterranean to the Holy Land. Something I might point out, and I have pointed out this before, that the Arabs were completely incapable of at this time. They're not going to be invading uh, Europe. I mean, now, sure, but in a different way. It wasn't going to happen. So they show up there. First Crusade was 1096 to 1099. And Pope Urban II uh, was the one who preached that we need to get that Holy Land back. And he recruited some of the nobles, notably a Godfrey of Boulogne and a Behemond of Toronto and Raymond IV of Toulouse. Now, Behemond is an interesting character, a very competent uh, general, also a little ruthless and had, uh, you know, been sort of fighting and doing things along in Italy. Uh, so I think part of it was just a good idea to get him on the road for a while and stop having him causing problems. So what really happened? They had some major battles. Uh, the main ones being the Siege of Jerusalem and one called the Battle of Dorylium. And casualty figures at this time, hard to come up with. Uh, all we really know is there's an estimated number at the Siege of Jerusalem at about ten to 15,000 were killed at that. A lot of these people were casualties in that they were maimed or injured. Many people were injured pretty seriously in these days, and there wasn't really a way to fix them. And a lot of the injuries involved amputation and things like that that certainly would not happen today or even would probably not happen in another four or 500 years. So what did they get? Well, they did capture Jerusalem, and they established what's called the Crusader States. And so they sort of drew that up around those Holy Land areas. And then that was given over to the charge of the people who were leading the Crusader armies. Now, you see where this goes. Uh, now we're starting to get into the money thing, right? I mean, can I get some money out of this and some power and so on and so forth? So it goes along for a while, and by 1147, things have started to go downhill again. It's the Second Crusade. And here we have uh, Louis VII of France. We have Emperor Conrad of Germany and uh, their spiritual leader, sort of a, a well-known uh priest who led a lot of people around, Bernard of Clairvaux. It didn't have a very good impact. It didn't achieve its main objectives. It didn't catch capture what it wanted to, which was Edessa. And it ended up weakening the Christian position in the Holy Land, led to all these internal conflicts. Major battles were uh, the Siege of Damascus 
And casualties are very high, but once again, they don't have specific figures on that. So that just really sets up the next thing. Because as you can see, now the Holy Land Crusader states are at best staggering forward. A lot of internal conflict, even more than there was before. And the Islamic peoples uh, continue to make inroads. Remember, at this point, one of the problems that uh, the Islamics uh, tribes had was they couldn't get together on anything. They spent a lot of time fighting each other, and it was very difficult to get them into a single fight, fighting force, and they weren't really used to tactically fighting that way, so it was difficult. The Third Crusade starts out, and a uh, major figure in that, Richard the Lionheart, but Frederick Barbarossa, and Philip II of France. Philip II went home early. Uh, he accomplished a little bit and then went home, which made people a little bit, you know, peeved at him. And Frederick Barbarossa never actually made it there. Uh, his uh, army uh, started out, and then uh, he was not able to make it. He passed. And so some Germans made it there, but for the most part, no. However, you know, this crusade lasted from 1189 to 1192. Uh, was pretty much a partial success. They recaptured some territories that had been lost, one of the things that had been lost was Jerusalem, by the way, and the, the Crusader states have sort of fallen apart and lot let Jerusalem get recaptured. Now remember, there's Saladin is now out there, the famous uh, and quite competent military leader for the Islamic states and coming out of Egypt and welding the tribes together into a more cohesive and cogent fighting force. Eventually, although they weren't able to take Jerusalem, Richard the Lionheart in particular pretty much cut and slashed his way across the Holy Land. He's a fa- magnificent warrior. Uh, and they were able to get a treaty, what was the Treaty of Jaffa, that allowed Christians to pilgrimage to Jerusalem. In other words, it wasn't regained within the power or control of the Christians, but they were able to visit it at, in their holy sites. And there were some really big battles in this one. Uh, there was a siege of Acre. There was the Battle of Arsuf and the Battle of Jaffa. Tens of thousands of people were killed in this, especially at the Siege of Acre, which was a mighty city, big walls. Uh, and sieges are, of course, no fun because usually they're trying to starve you out or burn you out. Right? So this continues, unfortunately. By 1202, we have uh, the Fourth Crusade, which is something that people don't like to think about very much because they kind of got off their original idea. Pope Innocent III managed to talk a bunch of people into doing another crusade, Baldwin of Flanders, Enrico Dandalo of Italy, and they decided to march around the Mediterranean and get into the Holy Land that way. Unfortunately, when they got to Constantinople, they decided that that may be just as far as they needed to go. And remember, this is when the schism between the Eastern and Western uh, Christian church was really starting to manifest itself. So there was a lot of uh, bad sort of uh, ecclesiastical blood between these two. So the uh, figures there said, hey, there's a lot of stuff in Constantinople. Uh, they're technically on our side, but, you know, they are not on our side exactly because they're the Eastern church. And so they decided to sack Constantinople. Constantinople. Uh, it was a terrible thing. Uh, they did manage to get in, 
killed thousands of people, mainly civilians, and carried off a bunch of stuff. Not exactly a high point in Western civilization. So by 1217, we have another crusade. And uh, it was led by Andrew Hungary, Leopold of Austria, and it really didn't accomplish much. They decided to go a different route and tried to capture Cairo from that side. Uh, did not get it done. They laid siege to Diamata. It was just a nothing thing. They they lost some men. They probably thousands of them. They didn't uh, really make any progress from that direction, and it really weakened the whole idea of the Crusades. Right? Uh, so that's not enough. These guys just uh, you know are not done yet. So seven years later, in twelve twenty eight, we have the Sixth Crusade, and they brought some warriors in, but they decided that they would try and negotiate something. So there were not many battles of any large loss of life or anything. Frederick II, who was a Holy Roman Emperor, had decided that he could come in and negotiate some return of the right of Christians to visit Jerusalem and he actually managed to get most of uh, Jerusalem under the control of the Christians. Uh, very diplomatic efforts, caught the uh, Islamic people at a time when it made some sense to them and they didn't want to get another military. And so that was relatively successful. But not being able to leave things alone, the Seventh Crusade comes roaming along in 1248 and pretty much failed in everything. Matter of fact, King Louis IX of France was captured uh, trying to lead this crusade. And as I remember right, it was at the Battle of Al-Marush. Let me think. Mal-Surah. Yeah, that's right, Al-Masurah. Uh, there was a lot, of cap, a lot of casualties at that. And, of course, they captured the king, which, of course, they eventually, um, as was the want of the day, they ransomed him back. And uh, this was led in 1270, by our good friend uh, Louis the Ninth again. Now, Louis, in trying to lead this crusade, dies during the crusade, and that was pretty much the end of it. There was one major battle at uh, the siege of Tunis, where everybody pretty much died of disease. Remember, at this point in history, a lot more soldiers, knights. Warriors of all sorts died of disease in many instances, particularly in protracted sieges, than they died of wounds from weapons. Some of it was the close quarters. Some of it was the long periods of time with poor nutrition that made them more, much more susceptible to it. Uh, they did not have a particularly good understanding of sanitation. Actually, the Romans had a much better I idea about this, and we can talk about that. They didn't know exactly what caused it, but they were very particular about where they put their sanitation and how far away it was. And, you know, if you're out of your tent and you were a Roman uh, legionnaire and you weren't doing your business where you're supposed to, it was bad news for you. Now, they weren't exactly sure what the connection was, but they knew that when everybody was doing their business everywhere, that all of a sudden disease, particularly dysentery, started cropping up. Well... This really is happening in the Middle Ages where they sort of let all of this slide. And so if you have a prolonged siege, a lot of that can happen. Uh, and 
as a result of that, that's kind of the Crusades, right? Give just some idea of what they're talking about in, in very thumbnail. Now, the one I wanted to finish up on, because it sort of it sort of leads into this, is the history of the Ukraine, right? Because we seem to be, I don't know, spending a lot of money in there. Uh, in the ancient times, we want to talk like about the ninth century, right? All the way to maybe the thirteenth century. Uh, it was made up sort of what used to be called the Kievian Rus, you know, from Kiev is where we get that name. But the Rus, a, a lot of them were actually Northmen, uh, what we would think of as sort of Vikings that had went east uh, because they felt there was trading there and they knew that there were big rivers that uh, flowed down through Russia, the Volga for one of them, and this is how so many people who are uh, Viking, as we think of them, especially the uh, Rus, uh, which is how we ended up with Russia, by the way, now, uh, are wandering around Constantinople uh, in the mid and the Middle East. Right? They're coming down those rivers, and it was a lucrative trading, so it drew a lot of them over there, and they certainly had the ability to do it because one of the things that the Viking types had, the Norsemen was shipbuilding. They could build a very effective ship, which was we see as the longboats or the dragon ships, that had a very, very low uh, need for uh, a draft underneath them. So they could navigate rivers much better than what was going on with anybody else. And they also, in fact, actually worked better. They had a lot of things going for them. I mean, they were clinker built, which meant they were overlapping built. And so that it was harder to get water, you know, water logged into them. They had a shallow draft. And one of the things people don't know about is if you look at the shape of them, I mean, the uh, dragon or the wolf or whatever's on the front of them but is shaped one way. But look at the back end of it. It's really shaped the same way. It just doesn't have a figurehead on it. They were made to be able to go either direction just as easily. So they could reverse oars and get out of there fast, which was something that most of the ships at the time could not could not do. By the way, the figureheads were only mounted when they were in hostile territory because they were there to frighten the gods of the uh, people they were invading, and when they went home, they didn't want to disrespect their gods by scaring them with these things. So, But yeah, so this is, this is how that ends up. And Kiev became its capital, Kiev. I still Kiev, Kiev all of a sudden. Um, and the guy that really established this guy by the name of uh, Prince Valdemir the Great. And uh, he also brought Christianity to these characters. This hung around for a while until about 1240 when uh, the Mongols showed up um, and uh, overran Kiev and uh, Kiev, rather. And just it led to a period of disunification and uh, really uh, not a coherent state at that point. Then along come the Poles and Lithuanians. This is like the 14th century, the 18th century. They uh, incorporated what's now the area we think of as Ukraine into the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and then the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, something I'm sure you've heard about all the time. Unfortunately, uh, the Cossacks, uh, who we think of part of Russians, and not a big fan of the Poles, so they had an uprising, and uh, it was called uh, the Kamalinsky Uprising. That was in 1648, I guess, written down here. And that threw off that yoke, right? And so that made them 
tend towards the Russian Empire. Because once again, the problem with Ukraine is they're stuck in a land that is basically easy to fight on. It's got a few little rivers and this and that, but no big mountains, no great big rivers like the Danube and everything. And so people are fighting on it all the time. And so they ended up uh, in the Russian Empire uh, until about 1917. And between that, between 1970 and 1991, they uh, tried to fight a little bit with the Soviets, get rid of them, didn't work out. There's a terrible thing. uh, in, between 1932 and 1933, when Stalin tried to collectivize farms in that area, because Ukraine is very rich uh, in farmland, um, the collectivization made a famine. Uh, millions of people died across that part of the Soviet Union. Uh, there were some pretty major battles in Ukrainian territory um, during World War II, because, once again, it's a great place where people want to fight. And they were actually made... Uh, an independent country in 1995. They had a declaration of independence from Soviet Union on 1991. A guy named Kravachuk became the first president, and they adopted their constitution in 1996. Uh, So that's kind of their history. Not as easily laid out as you would think. Um, they also suffered greatly from this thing that I wanted to talk briefly about if I have time is was called the great Northern war, which was the war between Sweden and Russia. And it lasted 21 years sort of highlights the way the Russians are willing to fight. Right now at this point, Sweden had a pretty good empire uh, that was uh, sweeping down into much of what we think of as uh, Russia and uh, Finland, those kinds of things. Peter the Great decided that wasn't uh, that wasn't going to stand, and uh, so he got in a coalition that included uh, Poland and Lithuania, and decided to go, you know, push back against these characters. So they have this fight with the Battle of Narva, Battle of Poltava in seventeen oh nine, and they have a treaty in seventeen twenty one. Now this ended the war, but Sweden had to cede significant territories to Russia. March and beginning of the Russian Empire. I mean, they gained territories including Livonia, Estonia, and parts of Finland, and they ended up getting a, a strong presence in the Baltic region. And that really began the rise of Russia as we think of it today, that is, prior to the Soviet Union. Uh, the war was devastating. It was all this huge casualties on both sides, just drug on and on. Tens of thousands of soldiers died. We don't have any exact fears, of course. Um, civilian casualties were significant because of the scale of the war and the uh, everything else. So I'll give you just some idea how the Russians fight. Um, they're willing to grind something out. I ground this out for 21 years. So just so you know, and I hope it helps out to give you a little perspective, and I'll talk to you folks next week, and I hope I didn't bore you too much. <laughs>